Welcome to Jewelry Artists, where we examine the art and business of making jewelry. Join me for intriguing conversations with jewelry artists who will inform and inspire you. I'm Katie Hacker, your host. My guest today is Sarah Cathcart, and she has a beautiful leather cuff in the upcoming issue of Lapidary Journal Jewelry Artist. We talk today about leatherworking tips and the botanical things she creates in leather. Hey, Sarah, I'm so excited you're here today. Hi, it's great to be here. All right, let's talk about some leather. Sweet. I'm looking at your mask, so... Yeah, that's actually honestly how I fell into this, because in many ways, um, when I started with masks and I fell into jewelry just because masks are so niche. Well, they were until 2020, so. (laughs) Right. That makes sense. Uh, So I kind of considered my masks like face jewelry, but it's not really something you know wear too much. I started from theater, so it's kind of oh, okay. a roundabout way. I got my degree in uh, costume design, um, but I really specialized in special effects, makeup, um, historic costuming, and costume crafts, which are all the weird things that the other costumers don't want to make, like armor, or uh, I had to make night vision goggles for a play we had to do one time. Weird stuff. And so you kind of get this magpie hodgepodge collection of skills that you just find other little places to use them in. When you were working on all of those other accessories, were they all made from leather? No, I actually, I fell into leather work kind of on accident. We were making masks for one of my classes and I I was doing a raven and I wanted that very shiny texture and buckram and fabric just weren't going to give it to me. Um, but it needed to be flexible and take a punch because I, I really like actors, but uh, shy of hurricanes and tornadoes, they're one of the most destructive forces in the universe. <laughs> um, so I wanted to find something that could give the shine of a natural material like the beak, but still be able to you know take a punch. So I ended up finding my local Tandy, um, getting lost. The poor manager waited after until they closed to let me in, let me get my leather. And we started talking and I, I ended up stumbling into a job, learning how to do leather work there for about, I don't know, six months. And then Uncle Sam moved me and my husband to Italy. So from that point on, um, you know, the... I, I couldn't really get a job in Italy because of visas and the DOD doesn't really need monster makers. So I ended up starting uh, leather masks and leather work is something to keep myself from going insane. And so that I just didn't feel like, uh, you know, uh, useless. I didn't, I didn't want to be the, the, there's a, there's an insulting term in the military uh, called a, a, a dependipotamus which is basically oh. a woman who sits around and does nothing. Um, and I didn't want to be one of those. So I started doing this because it allowed me to um, do my mask, to do things, make me feel like I'm, I'm still viable and not just sitting on my butt on the internet. Although- well, your work is so intricate. It has so many layers. I mean, it has an illuminated quality to it, even even though it's leather, you would normally think of that illuminated paintings or something. So I wondered if you brought your art you know, from painting and drawing over to leather. Oh, but it sounds um, like 
kind of. Yeah, kind of. Uh, in very in, in very many ways, I started doing the mask because I loved makeup, but I have been one of those Renaissance Fair nerds. I used to participate in them until we moved overseas for years. So I've always kind of had um, the medieval art and Renaissance art, and uh, it's always been kind of in the background of my life. So it just inevitably seeps into my work. Makes sense that it comes out there. Tell me about leather work, just kind of the basic principles of of creating the types of masks and cut work that you do. How do you prepare the leather itself and what do you start out with? Well, the beauty about leather work is that it's uh, very adaptable and it can be many different things depending on the type of leathers that you use. Um, I work with vegetable tanned leather, which is basically the second or third step that all leather goes through because uh, once it's there's, there's, let's say you've got chrome tans and then you've got vegetable tans. Uh, chrome tanned is what you're going to find that's turned into your shoe leather or purses or that kind of finished hide. Um, and a vegetable tanned is um, the process just before it gets, a leather gets turned into a chrome tanned. And when it's at this stage, the leather is pliable um, and, can, and has memory. So if you were to get it wet, you can stretch it or you can compress it or you can pound it and cut it and it will remember the shape that it was put in. And this is the leather that you often see for like Western saddles. And it's a very kind of, it can be a very utilitarian style of leather, but it's because it has those malleable properties, it also allows you to be artistic with it. Um, and so when I'm getting ready to do leather work, I, I, um, I have to figure out what I'm going to make, if it's going to be a mask or a bracer or anything like that, because you're working with a, well, a, a biological material, you kind of have to know on the hide where you want to cut it. It's not like fabric where one end is going to be the same of the, of one end of the bolt will be the same as the other end of the bolt, um, because it's an animal different parts of the leather are going to stretch and behave in different ways. So and sometimes it's even thicker at exactly. certain points and thinner exactly. at others, or it might have a, a scar or something. Scar. Yeah. It, 100%. You're, you're dealing with a, a well, a was an animal. Um, so like things near the spine tend to be a stiffer leather that doesn't move very much and uh, is really good at a holding a shape. Uh, but if you want something that can really stretch and, and how, how important it, it is to keep, keep a shape or keep impressions is less strict, like a belly portion would be a good section because that part of the animal had to flex and move a lot, you know, it's going to be the same properties are going to be onto the, uh, the leather and the skin. So I really like working with shoulders and backs for tooling because uh, those sections really hold the impressions very well. And when you go to wet mold them, they're, they're a little more resistant to lose some of, of those markings, whereas a belly, it may soften up and then you have to fiddle with it some more once it starts to dry. Um, it's, leather working is, is very, it's kind of like a gentle version of some sorts of metalworking. You don't have to worry about the flame so much, but some of the same techniques that are used for, um, oh, I forgot what it's called in metalwork, and I'm, I'm just 
my brain's COVID mush. Um, oh, that's okay. I, I noticed that some of your pieces have bezels. So they have a stone that's actually looks like it's been set in the leather itself. Yeah, that's, that's 100% it. Um, I, yeah, <laughs> it's a little different than the process that you're doing with um, like metal where you cut the strip and, and then you, you fuse it around the stone. What, and, and it's out of small pieces that you create your bezel. With leather, um, what I'm end up doing is I'm actually wet forming the bezel around the stone before I even cut a hole for it. Once that's nice and tight, then I cut the hole for the stone and slightly push it through. And then I, I apply a backing to it to keep it in there. And if it's an area where it's going to be particularly heavy wear and tear, I tend to do stitching to hold it uh, really in place. Behind the stone itself. Yeah, because you want it you want it tight because leather, unlike metal, is going to flex and move. So you got to kind of keep your material in mind because it it's still it has a lot more give to it right yeah yeah exactly that's leather is kind of fascinating it's this this in-between area of um it can behave a lot like fabric it can behave like wood um and then you know with some of the embossing techniques like you'd expect to see with metal you can then do with leather it's this very jack-of-all-trades medium yeah, you know, and I think it has a permanence that you might not uh, immediately think of. You yeah, know, that- you might think of lump- of natural material as being a little bit less permanent. But I mean, I have some leather jewelry that I've had since I was a child. So, you know, I mean, it does last. If you if you condition it well and you, you, you baby it, leather is surprisingly durable. My mother has a Victorian side saddle that, you know, we, we try to keep this thing in good shape, but it's from the mid-1800s, and you wow. can still ride ride with it because the leather's been kept in such good shape. So it's... And it uh, really takes on kind of the same, in a different way, I guess, but just like metal takes on a patina, so does leather. Yeah, and, and the fun thing is about vegetable tan leather is that uh, I actually have to keep all my stock uh, in my closet in the dark. Because just like skin, it can tan. So oh. yeah, so you can do some fun things with it. Uh, if you, it's it's called in leather being sunstruck. So if you have a roll up thing of leather that's been sunstruck, you unroll it, you'll see this tan patch and this fish belly white patch. But sometimes you can use that to your advantage. So you could take a piece of leather, put it out in your car, or no one's driving anywhere lately thanks to COVID. So you can <laughs> stick it out in the back of your car. <laughs> and then put like a leaf or some sort of solid image that you wanted and leave it out in the sun. And over a few days or months, if you really want a strong uh, tan, you remove that and you'll have that paler image. Just like some oh, cool. poor person who, you know, slept with their arm on their chest while getting sunburnt. It's the exact same Me. idea. <laughs> I understand that. I have never heard of that before. That's fascinating. And also that different ways you could use it in your art. It's really a fun medium because you have that, that uh, versatility to it. And I mean, I particularly love it uh, because of that. It's a little more gentle. Uh, The only downside is, is that I no longer notice the smell because like 
uh, vegetable tan leather has this wonderful kind of welcoming. Um, I I also raised on a farm, so to me, there's a certain leather always smells like home, very, huh? Yes, this very familiar, um, hardworking yet you know smell of potential. All these great things, but I'm around it so much, I'm nose blind. I don't notice it anymore, and that that kind of makes me sad. Mm. I guess you have to leave it in your closet for a really long time and then come back to it if you yeah. want to get that smell back again. <laughs> I have this friend uh, or had a friend who was 100 years old and he was a leather worker. And that's one of the ways that we became friends is I saw some of the work that he was doing. And he um, was doing these amazing tooled belts. And I was trying to ask him if he purchased the belt blank, like just a belt already cut that he was tooling, you know, and... He wasn't really interested in what I was saying. And then um, I sort of drew it out with my hands, you know, like, you know, a belt already pre-made. He's like, honey, I have a whole hide in there under my bed. <laughs> yep. Yep. So it is true. You have to think about storage, whether it's your closet or under the bed or where you're going to keep I, these I, pieces. Yeah, I have tubes of uh, uh, when we were living overseas, I um, it was it could be very difficult for me to find my leather. So I'd, I'd end up having to source my leather and have it shipped to me from tanneries in the United States. So those long brown boxes, they shipped my hides and I, I hoarded those because they were perfect for keeping my leather in the dark and safe so that when we moved, wherever that was, there they were. But I still have a whole bunch of chrome tan hides. I mean, I have a small herd. So yeah. <laughs> Did you find other people when you were living overseas to um, learn from or learn with? Not really. Um, well, I did two weeks before I moved uh, from Japan back to the United States. So I saw the potential, never got to in, in, indulge, which made me sad. Um, but predominantly, I'm self-taught. The manager at my old my old shop taught me the basics of leather. Like, you know, this is a beveler. This is a mold. Don't hit your thumb. You know, I, I got to learn the very basics. Um, but in many ways he was a great teacher because he would just teach me the basics and then go, I think you should do this and give me a challenge and not really tell me how to do very much. If I had problems, he might give me a tweak here and there, but mostly really enforced uh, kind of self-teaching because you're not always going to have someone there. So you need to learn how to think differently. And he was wonderful for that, but I blame him entirely for the level of details in some of my things because I was already <laughs> a detail addict and then he would make me review my own work before I showed it to him before he would teach me another skill so I'd always hear well that's pretty good but it could be better and it's always playing in my head so I'm always pushing myself further and further and further and sometimes it's on very small things like um, there's a process called beveling where you take this tool that looks a little bit like, I want to say it kind of like a chisel, but a little more flat and broad. And you put the pointed end of the tool into the cut line of your work. And it'll kind of like almost feel like it snaps into the hole or snaps into the crevice that the line cut into the leather. Oh, and mm -hmm. then you pound on that. And that's what kind of creates these uh, levels. So that's how you can make one piece of leather look like three different thicknesses. It's just by beveling. Well, you're making it sound really easy, but it looks really hard. <laughs> <I'm> like... <laughs> well, 
Well, I'm looking at these intricate Celtic knots that you have, where you have beveled, as you say, to reveal the um, text, to reveal the leather beneath there, but then you also texture that part too. Yeah, as I said, I'm, I'm a bit of an addict, but like for, for me now, thanks to him, I try to make all my beveling glass smooth because if I, if I can tell a hammer blows difference, it drives me nuts. It's all his fault. Um, <laughs> That's a good teacher. <laughs> Um, and, and, but I mean, sometimes you can cheat and you can do sloppy beveling when you know an area is going to be backgrounded. So like, and no one's going to see it. It's all going to be matted down into one pretty texture. No one will know. Sometimes uh-huh. you, get a covering, you can, covering you can all be your a little mistakes bit, if necessary. Oh, 100%. Yeah. But that's, I think the key to, uh, well, either a good, uh, can I curse a little bit? <laughs> yeah. Is that fine. A, that's, a, that's a key to a good artist. Either you're, you're good at hiding your mistakes or you bullshit that into and like, no, I meant to do that. <laughs> so I think true. That's, that's the sign. I think uh, you're right. A lot of people it, agree with us, I think. Yeah, BS with finesse. That's that's kind of my motto. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Um, one of the other things that I saw that you make are some really beautiful butterflies. In fact, I saw your pictures of them with a, flow- a flower with a butterfly on it, and I just assumed that it was real. <laughs> well, thank you. Honestly. Yeah, you're welcome. So did you have an affinity for insects and creatures, or have you discovered that leather is a perfect medium for that? I kind of fell in, like most things, I just kind of fell into that. I wanted to make um, a mask based off of the secret garden. Um I wish I had better fit pictures of that one. That one's long since sold. But I wanted to have this idea of kind of like a wrought iron fence look on this mask. And then I wanted a butterfly. And then I did like some beaded chains that look like plants and all that kind of stuff. But I wanted this, this three-dimensional butterfly to look like it had just landed on it. So I had to learn how to make a butterfly. And I had so many people wanting just the bug that I just kind of fell into making them because, you know, give the people what they want. And right. I started to just make scads of butterflies and I always try to make them like life-sized and as realistic as I can. And then this is my theater uh, thing showing up is like, if it can pot- potentially be seen, it needs to be just as beautiful on the underside as is on, on the front side, because visibility is important and I'm a little bit lazy so I didn't want to paint it so I gilded it so I basically took um it's uh, a matting agent uh called and I usually use gum trigacan and I I take the leather and I skive it or basically I shave the leather down very very thin at the edges so it has that realistic uh butterfly thickness and then I I use gum trigacanth and I try to back the backside of the leather as glass smooth as I can possibly get it. And then I gild it with uh, like white gold or moonlit gold, which is like this wonderful champagne colored gold or, you know, the standard yellow gold. And so beautiful. Um, they work out real well. Uh, they're, 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 they become, they, they do kind of become uh, more Zen-like when it becomes painting but it's not an easy happy zen sometimes it is and then sometimes you have to work uh, for it huh yeah yeah and you get in I, I tend to do them in batches so i'll do like 50 butterflies and just oh wow but now because i've been doing butterflies so long 
I kind of got a little bored with it, so I started playing with other insects. So recently, I made oh, a leaf. I love the cicada. Cicadas are my favorite. I love cicadas. Um, so cool. Uh, I want to do a, one with the closed wings sometime, so I gotta play with that. Uh, I did. I've done a leaf, a Madagascar leaf insect, so it's really pretty big. Um, my next big challenge for myself is an orchid mantis, and I'm really excited about that. Oh my gosh, you, it's so dimensional. How would you even begin? Uh, I, I, well, I'm, as I said, I'm in the experiment process, but I usually, oh, I, I kind of cheat. And so I try to see where the segments of the body of the insect are, and I break those into parts. So if it's got like a very prominent thorax, and then the rest is a little less dominant, I can... I can separate those instead of it just being one piece. And then from there, I tend to, uh, same thing with masks and everything else. If it's symmetrical and most things in nature and life are, you can be lazy and only have to worry about half the body. And then you can um, trace the image to the other side and you'll have the full image. Uh, and so I'll, I'll, I'll only worry about half an insect and I'll cut it out of a cheap paper and play with it there because paper's cheap and easy to mess around with, leather less so. So once I get it to a phase where I like the way it's behaving with the paper, even though it's not quite ideal there, I know it'll be so in the leather because um, leather in some ways is more forgiving because it, it can, you can stretch it, you can bend it, you can, you can force it to be a little more round. It has that um, malleability that allows you to do things like that. Making things out of leather hides a lot of sins. <laughs> well, you can create a lot of texture with it, I think. A lot of probably very gifted, talented metalsmiths would say the same. You know, maybe their hammered rings didn't start out that way. Yeah, my, my uncle is a, a whitesmith. So I got to understand a little bit of working with copper and tin from him uh, long before I ever started working with leather. Um, but he would make things like le less jewelry and more things like um, almost, well, Cooper's the wrong word. Those are barrel makers. Uh, but but he would make mugs and, and jugs for watering plants and a kind of more utilitarian, uh, the very classic tinker. Yeah, he was a tinker in the original sense of the word. And so I got to learn a little bit, some of, of copper work long before I ever learned leather. And I never made the connection until later, later in life. I'm like, oh shoot, they're the same thing. Yeah. Very similar techniques. You're right. I can see how they, how they go together. Do you, when you mentioned when you were talking about building a cicada um, or a mantis, drawing it on paper, cutting it out, making sure it works. Do you do the same thing with your other designs that are more, they're still three-dimensional, but I would say they're like on a flatter plane, like a cuff or a I, mask. Well, for, for like, if I was making a cuff, basically what I do is I take uh, my, or I, my measurements or whoever I'm making it for, and I'll make it out of paper first, make sure it fits them and it would be comfortable. And then depending on the thickness of leather that I'm using, I may add, you know, a few quarter of inches or centimeters or whatever is necessary so that it'll fit correctly. And then I'll, I'll start drafting out my pattern. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll cheat and I'll, uh, for the one in the magazine, I, I drew out 
the full the full pattern from the paper wrist one and then I cut that in half and then I drew uh, the pattern I wanted and then I flipped it to make sure that it could work. But I just tend to do everything in half because it, it saves you a lot of headache um, to not have to do everything, I mean, particularly if you want some uh, symmetry, it does make your life a lot easier. Where it starts becoming a pain in the butt is um, once you start doing things like uh, multiple points of symmetry for Celtic knotwork. So if you have, I do dinosaurs because I, I, I never grew over my obsession of dinosaurs at three. It's still I love there. dinosaurs too. Oh, they're the best. Dinosaur people unite. Heck yeah. Don't get me distracted on dinosaurs, my brain. <laughs> 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 um, but like I did a five point pterodont, well, I don't remember the, the exact breed of pterodactyl I used, but I did a, a, a five point radial uh, pterodactyl design. And that one was a pain in the butt because what I ended up having to do was draw the circle and then divide it into the five sections I want and then draw only part of the pterodactyl and then mirror that around and then connect all the pieces to try to get it to work. Celtic knotwork is a lot of fun, um, but I'm actually pretty new at it. I've been doing it for about a year and a half now. Um, and I, I don't know all the, the tips and tricks for it that so many other art, uh, Celtic worked uh, artists that I follow do, like the really complicated mathema- uh, mathematic kind of knots where the entire page is nothing but a single knot. Those people are, uh, they're crazy. And I, I, <laughs> I am so impressed with them. But I, I like doing the more zoomorphic style of knots where you can see animals in them, uh, stuff like that. that. That feels a little more comfortable for me because um, I don't like math. Math is a nightmare for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like you have a lot of the principles. I mean, working in symmetry that way with with the I mean, basically these are dimensional illustrations. Yeah. If you really break it down. Yeah, pretty and, much. Um, you know, there's still some math principles in there, but I hear what Don't you're saying. Don't say that. Don't <laughs> say that. Because then you'll you'll psych me out. We we don't use that word. <laughs> Well, I can see how um, it w- it is a labor of love, you know, to to make all of the pieces connect and move the way that you want them to, and create all these different dimensions. Um, it is, I could see how it's pretty intense when you're in the thick of it, you know. Maybe not so zen like until you're kind of beyond that and moving into painting. Yeah, the, like you the, said, the tooling the tooling section can be very zen because it's just the design has already been. Um, so what I do is I, I, I take the things from my sketchbook or the paper that I'm using, and then I have this kind of thick uh, plastic film that I trace the original design onto the film and then trace that onto the leather. And it becomes a lot of tracing. So you're, once, you, once you get that, um, the, that using a uh, um, stylus kind of loosely pressed into the leather, then you start tracing that with the swivel knife and then you start doing that with the beveling and all these other things. So the design's already there and it, that's when it becomes more meditative uh, for me because you can just kind of follow the pattern and follow everything with your tools because they will kind of push you in the right direction. 
Um, and it can start getting a little more challenging when you start using your pair tool because their pair tool becomes a way of shading um, and, and making things seem more three-dimensional. And that's where it can start it getting a little challenging. So it's a little less sun-like, but you still get this fun um, mental challenge. So I, I, really, I really like the different phases of it. But when you have to do a lot of it, particularly beveling, I, I will admit, uh, finding anything with a really good beat, like techno or anything like that, can really help <laughs> you speed through because your tool, your hammer blows inevitably start matching the beat. So just so you can pick your beats per minute and get to work. Pretty much. Oh, pretty there much. I go with math again. <laughs> of course, good thing we're not on camera because it gave you a dirty look. But <laughs> yeah, that's good. <laughs> Yeah, that is fascinating. I think it's really cool how you may, really are bringing all of these um, natural things to life. I mean, dinosaurs and leaves, even flowers, butterflies, all of these things are so lifelike. And so I think you have a real gift for seeing what things actually look like and then translating that into this medium. It's, it's, I, I can get away with it because it, it's a it's a very gentle medium in in that aspect. It, it allows you to make mistakes in some ways and others not. Like like with paper, like with metal. Like once you make a cut, it's That's there. It. Uh, mm -hmm. But it's a little more forgiving in metal in that you know you can kind of depending on what you're making. So like if I'm making a mask and I kind of screw up on a small place. If depending on where that part is going to be, I might be able to get away with it or, or hide it because when the leather is stretched um, and molded to a face form, that may stretch that part of the leather out so that that flaw may be less noticeable. Or if it's antiqued um, and I'm trying to do something like a little more steampunk or ancient looking, that flaw can all of a sudden become a good feature. Um, so it's it's a mixed bag but it's it is definitely a fun medium to work with but it is not the quietest art form of of all of all kinds i i think uh my downstairs neighbors would have appreciated if i was a beater instead of a uh <laughs> something with a hammer huh yeah <laughs> trying to make a pun there but failed uh, uh i can't tell you how many times i'll tell people what i do and they're like you what yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, that's another question, you know, I had is how would you go about doing this on veggie leather? I mean, it just, I don't think it responds the same way. A vegetable tanned leather is the one that's very forgiving to let you do all these things. Chrome tanned leather, it can be done. Like there there are um, people who emboss it, particularly like um, book binders, but they tend to use like brass tools and a lot of heat to do so. Mm -hmm. And I don't have those tools or those skills. Uh, I, I'll stick with the uh, vegetable tanned leather because it's a little... It's uh, where you live right now. It's it where I like. live. It's, it's mm -hmm. where I'm happy. Uh, I'm starting to play um, more with uh, incorporating some chrome tan into my stuff. I think I'm working on making... Uh, I've already outed myself as a nerd, so there's... There's no further I can go. Um, I'm making my, my husband um, a dice bag because we're D&D geeks. And um, I'm doing uh, some, basically I'm making half the bag look like it's made out of stone. And then half the bag I'm doing kind of Celtic knot work um, swirls in it 
very dark crystal looking. Cool. Um, but I'm going to make it look like wood. So oh, I'm kind of wow. going to blend kind of a stone looking Skeksis pattern on one side and then a Mystics looking pattern. And then they're going to kind of fuse together at the bottom of the bag. And then I'm, you know, and then I'm using um, uh, an eggplant, purple looking um, lambskin leather as uh, for the cinch part of the bag. So you just pull, pull that in. Um, so, yay. <laughs> That sounds neat. I can't wait to see a picture of it when you're done. Hopefully you'll be able to share it online. Uh, yeah, yeah. I started Instagram about a, a little over a year ago for the very first time. And I, I fail as a millennial. Like, I'm like, I don't know how to do this. <laughs> and so um, I've been trying to, I've been trying to feed the algorithm. Lately, I've been, last six months I've been bad. I've been doing nothing but fabric masks. But um, before like everyone this, else. yeah. Before COVID hit, it kind of was a good uh, instigator, but needle in the back of my head. I'm like, I haven't fed the algorithm this week. Oh, shoot. I should feed the algorithm. And so I'll post works in progress and um, the, the occasional um, shop assistant picture, stuff like that. So, oh, yes, that's necessary. Yeah. But since I well, haven't I always... been doing that, my studio has gone to. <laughs> yeah, no incentive to keep it clean. Oh. Well, I always ask folks about a favorite gemstone or piece of jewelry. Do you have one that you'd like to share with us? Um, well, it's not a piece of jewelry that I make, but my favorite pieces of jewelry, period, um, are kanzashi, which are hairpins, Japanese hairpins. Oh, yeah. Um, my hair goes down to my waist, so it's always in my way. Um, but I really like Kanzashi because it's, um, there are many different types, but my favorite are the straight hairpin styles and they'll usually have uh, decoration at the end, whether it's a flower made out of very intricately folded, um, tri uh, triangles, well, squares of fabric that look like a flower. Um, but my absolute favorite one is a silver, uh, two of them. One of them is a silver, uh, katana that has mm -hmm. a brass fox uh, wrapped around the, the hilt of the blade. And you just oh, stick cool. that in your hair. And then the other one is of a, a crane. And it's all made out of sterling silver. And I love that thing. And what's great uh -huh. about them is like put, put them in my hair. It makes it look like I know what I'm doing. <laughs> Do you make a no bun stick. and then yep. put, the, put yep. them in? Yep. I just stick them in there. It makes it you know look all fancy. And I don't know what I'm doing. So, which works out fine because beforehand i was just doing the same thing with pens and pencils and and, and me too yeah my, my husband is like i want to hug you but i'm but you're dangerous but you you're gonna stab me with <laughs> <Exactly>. your hair <laughs> exactly yeah that's good i love the idea of kanzashi i i hadn't thought about um those as hair jewelry but they really are yeah they're they're my my favorite and so i i, I have probably too many but i don't care i still want more <laughs> Your treasure hunt continues. Oh yeah! Well, thank you so much, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for talking with me today. It's oh, really my fun. Thanks for listening. To see pictures, please check out our show notes: innerweave.com/jewelry-artist-podcast. Jewelry Artist is hosted and produced by me, Katie Hacker. We had help from Tamara Hahnemann and Merle White, with special thanks to the team at Lapidary Journal Jewelry Artist Magazine. Jewelry Artist is an interweave podcast and produced by Golden Peak Media. 
Our podcast producer is Matthew Talisfor. Tammy Jones is our web editor, and Jesse Rodriguez does our marketing. Our executive producer of podcasts is Jared Mayer. 